The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Absolute power, revenge, and mutiny. Welcome to my weekly report for Thursday, February 13th, 2020. Thank you for listening to this independent news, which appreciates your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. It's called the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument, and it is a breathtakingly beautiful part of the United States. It was declared a monument nearly a quarter century ago to preserve its natural beauty and to protect its artifacts. Anthropologists still find signs of the Pueblo Indians who once hunted and gathered there, and paleontologists find fossils from the dinosaurs that roamed there long before the Native Americans. Did someone say fossils? Could that also mean oil? In 2017, the Trump administration ripped away the federal protections for about half of this land, nearly a million acres of this national monument, to open it up for drillers looking for oil and natural gas, and for mining companies to dig for whatever minerals it may find in those unique mountains. In his first year in office, Trump also took a million acres from another Utah monument called Bears Ears. Together, they represented the biggest rollback in the protection of public lands in the history of the United States. One week ago today, the Trump administration finalized its plans to let the mining and drilling begin for the industry that is warming our planet. There's nothing new about this policy. This could have been news from any other day over the past three years, but now it's morphing from policy to reality. Now it's action from a president who believes more than ever he can do anything he wants. That land, this million acres, is in southern Utah. Did someone say Utah? Isn't that the state represented in the Senate by Mitt Romney? It happens every year, usually on the first Thursday in February. It's called the National Prayer Breakfast. It's a bipartisan event at which the leaders of the nation's government and business and religions break bread together for the sake of unity and hope. Until 1970, it was called the Presidential Prayer Breakfast. After this year's, we might as well go back to the original name. Waiting for Trump at his table setting one week ago this morning was a copy of USA Today bannered with the oversized one-word headline, Acquitted. The day after the Mueller report had presented the evidence against Trump and declared what could not or would not be done about it, Trump was emboldened. And the next day, he called the president of Ukraine to ask for a favor to give him dirt on Joe Biden in trade for money to fight Russia. Now that Trump's been acquitted of impeachment charges inspired by that extortion, now that he knows he cannot be stopped by Congress, the free press, or the law, Trump was suddenly as unleashed as he is unhinged. And he wasn't going to put it on pause, even for some prayer breakfast, especially with his approval numbers up and the Democrats appearing in disarray. He held up the newspaper for the cameras that were there to record this annual event. Trump hadn't come for prayer. He'd come for gloating, and he had come for revenge. He had a lot of things on his mind, including the Mueller probe and Utah Senator Mitt Romney, the only Republican in Congress with the courage and conviction to make himself a target to do what he believes is the right thing. Pointing to his deep religious beliefs, Mitt Romney had willingly made himself a target for Fox News, talk radio, and nearly half of Twitter. We have allies, we have enemies, said Trump in the speech he gave last Thursday morning, adding, sometimes the allies are enemies. We just don't know it. Fellow Republican Mitt Romney, who's agreed with Trump four out of five times in Senate votes, was suddenly now the enemy. See also enemies list Richard Nixon. 
I don't like people who use their faith as justification for doing what they know is wrong, Trump told his breakfast partners. And then, with Nancy Pelosi a few seats away, Trump added, nor do I like people who say I pray for you when they know that's not so. When it was her time to speak, Pelosi kept politics out of it, praying instead for the poor and persecuted around the world. But Trump's agenda was, as usual, Trump. The speaker before him, public policy scholar Dr. Arthur Brooks, aired his concerns about what he calls the crisis of contempt and polarization that's tearing our societies apart. He called on government and business and religious leaders at the breakfast to do what the Bible says, love your enemies. Arthur, I don't know if I agree with you, said Trump as he stepped to the lectern, adding, I don't know if Arthur is going to like what I'm going to have to say. And although Nancy Pelosi had prayed for the poor, Trump was there to tout the economy and slam the Democrats there and later in that same day, calling Democrats horrible, bad, dirty, vicious, sick, dishonest, corrupt, leakers, liars, and scum. It was, after all, an election year, prayer breakfast. You better go out and vote on November 3rd, said Trump, because you have a lot of people out there that aren't liking what we're doing. For Trump, on the morning after his acquittal, the prayer breakfast was as good a place as any to step up a religious war for political gain. We are in a fight, said Trump, continuing, religion in this country and religion all over the world are under siege, he said, adding, and we won't let that happen. Maine Republican Senator Susan Collins said of the impeachment trial that Trump had, quote, learned a pretty big lesson. He certainly did, but it was not the lesson Susan Collins and other congressional Republicans expected, even though it's exactly the lesson the rest of us expected him to learn. Donald John Trump has, in this week since acquittal, has declared absolute power and used our traditionally impartial justice system as a tool to protect his friends and punish his enemies in the style of a dictator. More than anything this week, Trump was all about the punishment, the vengeance, and the pounds of flesh. The day was young, and Trump had more to say. So he gathered Republicans in the East Room of the White House, where the body of John F. Kennedy and six other presidents had laid in state to celebrate his not guilty verdict. As celebrations go, it wasn't about fun. It was about fury, more rage than revelry. The East Room is now also the room where the current president of the United States used the word bullshit to describe the Russia investigation to call Nancy Pelosi a horrible person, knowing it's what his voter base wanted to hear. Trump was filled with rage following a Nancy Pelosi news conference in which she reminded the president that, like two other presidents before him, he had not been removed from office, but that he remains impeached forever. He held up another morning paper, the Washington Post, with its oversized two-word banner headline, Trump acquitted. He said he thought he might get that one framed. In his celebratory rant that lasted over an hour, Trump called former FBI Director James Comey a sleazebag, a word not often uttered publicly by a president. In fact, make that never. Referencing the FBI and the U.S. intelligence community, Trump used the phrase dirty cops and called them scum. These are the crookedest, most dishonest, dirtiest people I've ever seen, said Trump. And remember, he's met Lev and Igor. Had I not fired James Comey, said Trump, three years after the fact, it's possible I wouldn't even be standing here right now. At one point, Trump-publican Congressman Mark Meadows rose to his feet and told the president, we've got your back, as if acquitting Trump without witnesses hadn't already made that point. The Republican-controlled Senate, except for Romney, of course, had made it clear that Trump can now really do what he wants. What could he possibly want? Will there be no retribution, asked Trump Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham, 
Maybe people should pay for that, she said. There's every reason to think Trump's enemies will pay some price for opposing our now fearless leader. There were good reasons for the government to say no to AT&T's plans to buy Time Warner, but those were not the reasons the Trump administration opposed those plans. It was because Time Warner owned CNN. There's a press release from Trump's 2016 campaign to back this up. He ordered the Justice Department later to investigate the automakers who dared to resist his plan to roll back clean air and fuel efficiency standards. In the summer of 2018, Trump asked then-Defense Secretary Jim Mattis to, quote, screw Amazon. Not for the reasons any of us might hope, but because it's owned by Jeff Bezos, who also owns the Washington Post, which Trump also despises. He's pushed the Postmaster General to double Amazon's postage rates. Just last week, Trump's Homeland Security Secretary went on Fox News to say that DHS is no longer enrolling New Yorkers in several traveler programs because New York protects its sanctuary cities. And because he is still not over losing the popular vote by nearly three million, he had asked then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions to launch yet another investigation of Hillary Clinton and snatched a million precious acres from Mitt Romney's Utah to make way for the drillers and miners. And then came the Friday night massacre. As the work week was ending, the punishments were only beginning and heads began to roll. Those career beheadings began with a twofer. Purple Heart veteran and Army Lieutenant Colonel Alex Vindman, who was the top Ukraine expert on the National Security Council, was fired from the NSC and escorted out of the White House. Vindman had testified against Trump in the Ukraine-based impeachment hearings, promising his late father at those hearings that, for telling the truth, he'd be all right. He's now back at the Pentagon, where it appeared he would be protected from further punishment. Fired and removed at that same time was Alex's twin brother, Eugene Vindman. He had nothing to do with Ukraine or the hearings or the impeachment in any way, but he was Alex's brother. Living just a block apart, the Vindman brothers carpooled to their homes together for the last time that night. And Trump is not through with Vindman and not happy with the way the colonel is still employed by the Defense Department. On Tuesday, Trump said he would certainly expect the Pentagon to look into disciplining Vindman. It would be hard to imagine for what Colonel Vindman might be disciplined unless it was for telling the truth as he had sworn on his father's grave that he would. The next to go was Gordon Sondland, the U.S. ambassador to the European Union, who got the gig despite his lack of diplomatic experience, but because he had donated a million bucks to Trump's inauguration. Sondland was also one of the three amigos who had worked together to help Trump and Rudy Giuliani carry out their mission to get Biden dirt from Ukraine. For his efforts, for his dedication, and for his million bucks, Gordon Sondland was also fired because he too had testified. Both Sondland and Alex Vindman had been planning to leave their posts anyway after what they have been through. But Trump didn't want them to have the satisfaction of leaving on their own power. He wanted to fire them before they could quit. He wanted revenge. Retribution against a witness in a federal proceeding is illegal under 18 U.S. Code 1513 for whatever that is now worth. Several valuable witnesses jumped before they could be pushed. Former ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch, her replacement, Bill Taylor, special envoy to Ukraine, Kurt Volker, State Department official, Michael McKinley, and the State Department's aide to the vice president, Jennifer Williams. Acting White House Chief of Staff, Mick Mulvaney, may be one of the next to go. 
Mulvaney obediently refused to testify, but did clumsily tell the nation that there had been a quid pro quo in withholding that Ukraine money. Also on the short list, the intelligence community's Inspector General, Michael Atkinson, who determined the Ukraine whistleblower's report to be on the level and sent it to Congress as the law requires. Deputy National Security Advisor Victoria Coates has reportedly told co-workers that she fears she is also on that short list, and there may well be others. Trump has continued to block the book by John Bolton under the clearly false claim that the book includes top-secret information. When finally allowed to speak at the end of the impeachment trial, Trumpublican Rand Paul read into the record and into America's televisions the alleged name of the alleged whistleblower. Even Rand Paul has admitted he doesn't know for sure if that's the guy's name. Good luck, guy. At this point, the only reason for outing the whistleblower is to make them a target right at the heart of retaliation season. The mission was clear, at least to Donald Trump Jr., who tweeted, Allow me a moment to thank Adam Schiff. Were it not for his crack investigation skills, Donald Trump might have had a tougher time unearthing who all needed to be fired. End quote. This could be the end of the government whistleblower, the ethical voice in government that goes through channels to report wrongdoing. We're going to get to the bottom of this, said Lindsey Graham, to make sure this never happens again. If you are a government official who's into wrongdoing, this retribution campaign is very good news. Ethical people will rightfully be more afraid to speak truth to power, knowing there is only punishment for those who speak their truth. Federal workers and even many of their supervisors will now think twice, maybe three times, before outing corruption. The reins are off. Donald Trump is free to do what he wants. What could possibly go wrong? Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer is now asking all the inspectors general in all 74 of the government agencies that have them to immediately report cases of retaliation against those who report presidential misconduct. At this point, there's no telling where the reprisals will stop. Over in the Capitol, Trump wants revenge as well against House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff. And according to the Washington Post, Trump has met with congressional Republicans about how best to get revenge on Schiff. Schiff has already gotten death threats. He, too, is now under protection. That same group is talking now about also ways to damage Mitt Romney and more. And in the Senate, Trump Republican Committee chairmen are launching investigations into Joe Biden's son, Hunter. Trump doesn't want anyone to see his financial records, and he's gone to illegal extremes to make sure no one does. He has defied all legal subpoenas and fought every court case. But Trump wants everyone to see Hunter Biden's financial records based on a disproved conspiracy theory and without evidence that Joe Biden's son was up to no good when he served on the board of a natural gas company in Ukraine at the same time his dad was vice president. And while Trump's Treasury Department is happy to break the law and refusing to release his records, it's told Republican senators they can have any IRS document on Biden they want. Those Republican senators doing Trump's bidding are asking for any Biden documents that any other government agency might have, in addition to the IRS. And having failed at getting Ukraine to smear the Bidens, Trump now has the U.S. Senate doing it. Should the Republican-controlled Senate decide to punish Hunter Biden, it remains to be seen how they feel about the importance of hearing from witnesses. Never mind that Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner made at least $82 million in outside income last year while working their day jobs at the White House. 
Ivanka made nearly $4 million off her dad's hotel in D.C., and she collected $2 million in severance pay for leaving the Trump organization. Lindsey Graham says there's now a system in place through which Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, who's not part of our government, can report his findings in Ukraine directly to Trump's Attorney General, Bill Barr. Barr, meanwhile, says any investigations of any of this year's presidential candidates have to go through him. The son of a candidate, however, might be a different story. Having learned well from the Russians, the Trump campaign plans to spend over $1 billion on websites and social media campaigns. It will, of course, get help from Fox News and the like, and a vast army of freelance helpers and political groups. It was 2020 campaign manager Brad Parscale who'd spent tens of millions of dollars of campaign money on ads at Facebook and Google. He'd used those words in 2016 to paint Hillary as a criminal and to stoke fears of radical Islamic terrorism. Between June and November of 2016, Brad Parscale bought nearly 6 million ads on Facebook compared to Clinton's 66,000 ads. Many of the ads were aimed at Democratic voters, African Americans, white liberals, and young women with the goal of discouraging them from even voting. Facebook will help this year's disinformation campaign, too, by refusing to ban political ads that spread false information. And Parscale plans to spend more and do more this year especially now that the guy who set up a website to sell MAGA hats has been promoted to running the entire presidential re-election campaign. The Republican National Committee reportedly now has an average of 3,000 data points on every single voter in the U.S., 3,000 per person. They know what TV channels you watch, whether you have a gun, your gender, your sexual preference, and exactly where you're located. In fact, the whole world has learned the Russian disinformation technique, including North Korea, China, and Iran. And this year, more than ever, the disinformation and propaganda campaigns will come even more from within the United States. And not just with false ads, but also fake news from fake websites with credible-sounding names like the Arizona Monitor. There is no Arizona Monitor. It's not a thing. It's just a website with a bunch of fake news stories with a right-wing agenda. And this sort of story can and has been retweeted by Trump and Trump Jr. As the president told one of his crowds of red hats in 2018, remember, what you're seeing and what you're reading is not what's happening. Or, as a political historian once put it, the most successful totalitarian leaders wanted people to, quote, think everything was possible and that nothing was true. 91% of Trump supporters are with him on that. They also hate real reporting. Only 11% say they trust the mainstream media, while 91% do not. In fact, the Atlantic's McKay Coppins reports that at his rallies, a number of Trump supporters can be seen wearing T-shirts that read, Rope, Tree, Journalist, Some Assembly Required. The people in those T-shirts don't care about what's been said about Donald Trump or even the things he has said. Trump supporters have found their voice in him. And they're with him, right or wrong, truth or fiction. As one told the Atlantic reporter, he tells you what you want to hear. I don't know if it's true or not, but it sounds good, so F it. Fact versus fiction is already a monumental part of the 2020 election. And QAnon is here to make things worse. It first appeared two years ago online as conspiracy theorists embraced imagined plots against Trump by the deep state. The New York Times reported this week that QAnon no longer lives just on the Internet. 
It's now in our streets. The Times cites the incident in which a man spouting the QAnon crazy talk about the Democrats' child sex trafficking ring damaged the altar at an historic Catholic chapel in Arizona using a crowbar. In QAnon's launch, Trump was portrayed as having been chosen by the military to break up a worldwide network of pedophiles. Of course, they also believed that the Mueller investigation would put big-name Democrats behind bars in Guantanamo Bay. QAnon is all about the pedophiles, though, and suspects Hollywood couldn't exist without them. At a Trump rally in Florida, Times reporters spotted people wearing Q t-shirts, talking about the Democrats torturing and killing children to get a chemical from the children's blood so Democrats can live longer. That this kind of lunacy exists is not surprising. What is surprising and terrifying is the growing number of people who embrace this lunacy and how it has leapt from the Internet to real life. Hundreds of QAnon members gathered in a park in Tampa, Florida last month and picked up, using the term loosely, literature. Across the country, about a dozen of them have run for public office. One says he believes there's a group of liberals in Belgium who, quote, eat aborted babies. Yet another QAnon follower has been arrested in New York on murder charges. A Colorado cure has been arrested for kidnapping. And Donald John Trump has retweeted QAnon tweets more than 20 times. He's had some of them up to the White House for his social media summit for plotting against the Democrats in 2020. He's even posed for a photo with one of them in the Oval Office. They walk among us and in the midst of the President of the United States. While Nancy Pelosi reminds Democrats that their winningest issue in 2020 is health care, health care, health care, Donald John Trump is campaigning a different way. He's running on a platform that would rip health care coverage from millions of people. The federal budget he proposed this week cuts hundreds of billions of dollars to Medicaid, the Children's Health Insurance Program, and hundreds of billions from Medicare for the elderly, the very thing he promised to protect. Tens of billions from Social Security which he also promised to protect. Breaking his promise of much better health care than Obama's Affordable Care Act, he has no health care program, while cutting another $844 billion from Obamacare and driving 2 million people off the program. At the height of the coronavirus outbreak, Trump's budget plan cuts the Health and Human Services budget by nearly 10%, which also means less money for the Centers for Disease Control and the National Institutes of Health the Environmental Protection Agency would see its budget cut by nearly 27% over the next year. Interior Department, which protects our national parks and monuments, would be cut by more than 13%. See also Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. There'd be a nearly 9% cut in the Housing Department while Trump complains about the homeless, but only about homelessness in the cities and states that don't support him. Children take the hardest hit in this proposal, $82 billion to be cut from the Nutrition Assistance Program, while, as Bernie Sanders points out, one in seven homes with kids have barely enough money to buy food. Neither Democrats nor Republicans will like Trump's proposed 8% cut in the Agriculture Department budget. Trump would cut the education budget by nearly 8%. Student loan forgiveness would be cut by $170 billion. Trump's budget totals nearly $5 trillion and spends more money on the military, including $2 billion to build his wall, and more money for NASA in his quest to return the U.S. to the moon by 2024. 
but the proposed Trump budget kills the Republican dream of wiping out the federal budget in the next 10 years. In spending more money than it collects, the U.S. government borrows money to cover the deficit. The national debt is already up by $3 trillion since Trump took office. The proposed budget would add another $5 trillion to that debt over the next 10 years. The total current debt is $20 trillion. Trump promised he would eliminate the debt by 2025. This budget pushes back that date by at least another 10 years and raises the debt instead to $25 trillion. The chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, is warning that trillion-dollar budget deficits are unsustainable. What can we conclude about a Trump budget proposal that angers Democrats with something for Republicans to hate as well? Well, two things. One, it's a campaign manifesto to excite his voter base, cut what they perceive as government handouts, and spend more money on the military to make the U.S. tougher. He may not realize he's handing Democrats evidence to make their case that they want to expand health care while he wants to cut it. Health care, health care, health care. But Trump's budget proposal is also a negotiating ploy that we have seen from him before. In the last budget, Trump gave up his proposed cuts to social programs on the condition he'd still get more money for the military. That's what this is all about. Chances are he'll do the same this time, and the national debt goes up again. Trump has talked about cutting government spending, but as Trump himself said on a recording secretly made at Mar-a-Lago, who the hell cares about the budget? Adding, we're going to have a country. Speaking of spending by this administration, let's talk about the half million dollars the Trump administration is handing to a group called, not kidding, Hookers for Jesus. We know this only because of a whistleblower complaint filed this time not by an individual, but by the union for all employees at the Justice Department. The money is for fighting the trafficking of human beings for sex, a cause on which we can all agree. But the union's blown the whistle because two well-established nonprofits were denied funding for this cause, with that million bucks instead going to Hookers for Jesus in Nevada and a group called the Lincoln Tubman Foundation in South Carolina. The groups denied money are Chicanos por la Casa of Phoenix and the Catholic Charities in Palm Beach, Florida. The Hookers Group and the Lincoln Tubman Foundation have lower ratings among charities than do the two that got cut. Both the Chicano Group and the Palm Springs Catholics are rated Tier 1. Unlike the Catholic Charities in Palm Springs, Hookers for Jesus forces the women at shelters to attend Bible study and to do manual labor, and it can now do this with taxpayer money. Hookers for Jesus is a conservative Christian group, and the Lincoln Tubman Foundation was launched by a relative of one of Trump's delegates to the 2016 Republican National Convention. Chicanos por la Casa, meanwhile, has consistently opposed Trump's immigration policies, while the Catholic Charities in Palm Beach is headed by an active Democrat. The whistle has been blown by the union representing Justice Department workers because this decision was made for political reasons not to better serve the victims of human sex trafficking. And because, especially illustrated by the past week, the Trump administration is all about retribution, reprisal, and revenge. And speaking of immigration, as we have in the budget proposal and hookers for Jesus stories, the construction of Trump's border wall is blowing up Native American burial sites. 
Democratic Congressman Raul Grijalva says the blasting being done by the construction crews in Arizona's Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument is sacrilegious. And, he says, the government failed to consult first with the Tohono O'odham Nation, a tribe whose ancestors buried rivals, the Apaches, there when the two tribes were at war. In that location, the wall also interferes with migrating wildlife and an underground aquifer for drinking water. Some of the artifacts found in the area date back 10,000 years. The blasting continues. The White House has waived the laws protecting Native American graves and is now in the process of destroying two dozen archaeological sites. Instead of blowing up archaeological sites in Iran, as Trump had threatened, he's doing it instead here in the United States. At the age of 67, longtime Trump confidant and political dirty trickster Roger Stone will be sentenced one week from today for his part in connecting the Trump campaign to WikiLeaks to get dirt on Hillary Clinton from Russia. Stone deserves as much as nine years in prison, according to the federal prosecutors who got Stone convicted for obstructing Robert Mueller's Russia investigation and by lying to Congress and through witness tampering. Prosecutors from the Mueller investigation recommended Stone get seven to nine years in prison. They reminded the judge that Roger Stone did not commit these crimes out of desperation, that he is, in fact, instead a man of means. It appeared the flamboyantly dressed trickster with a tattoo of Richard Nixon's face on his back, this longtime friend and advisor to Donald Trump, was headed to prison. Or maybe he wasn't. Trump tweeted, Disgraceful. This is a horrible and very unfair situation. Cannot allow this miscarriage of justice. Please note his words, cannot allow. Trump's Attorney General Bill Barr saw that bat signal and swung into action. The next morning, the Justice Department announced it was reducing the sentencing recommendation made by its own prosecutors. Barr ordered those career federal prosecutors to reduce their recommendation, insisting he did not get his orders from the president to do so. Trump insisted he had not spoken to Barr about this. They didn't have to have a conversation. Trump tweeted his desire and Barr got right on it. This is not normal. Prosecution recommendations are never reversed or were never reversed until now. By the end of Tuesday, as the media focused on the Democratic horse race in New Hampshire, all four of the prosecutors who had worked so long and hard on the Roger Stone case withdrew from the case, refusing to return to court to recommend a lighter sentence than the one they believe is right. It was, in short, a mutiny. The prosecutors are said to be furious. They refuse to obey the order from their boss, Bill Barr. Their withdrawal shouted to the world, including their co-workers, that this was wrong, that they would not go against their principles, and that they would have no part in this. Their protest withdrawals shouted to the world that there is sharp division inside the United States Department of Justice between those who stand with impartial justice and those who stand with Donald Trump. One of these four career prosecutors even quit the Justice Department altogether over the fact that justice, which is supposed to be an independent and free of political pressure, was being manipulated by Bill Barr and his boss, Donald John Trump. The New York Times reports that now at least a dozen prosecutors around the country are in fear that their cases, too, might be subject to political interference, or that people will think their prosecutions are political, undermining faith in the justice system. And fear is a powerful tool for an authoritarian leader. The president was interfering with due process at what is supposed to be an independent law enforcement agency, claiming he has the 
absolute right to do so. Trump believes the Justice Department is his to protect his friends and punish his enemies. Through his personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, Trump is using the Justice Department as a tool to investigate Joe Biden, to investigate the FBI's Russia probe, and to protect his buddy, Roger Stone. That's not what U.S. presidents do. That's what authoritarians do. It's what dictators do. Unleashed by his impeachment acquittal and still believing that I can do whatever I want, Trump was declaring absolute power. And as threatening as that is to justice in our democracy, it'll be up to the judge to decide Roger Stone's fate. Three of the prosecutors have already filed court papers to announce their protest withdrawals. Judge Amy Berman Jackson may want to hear from these four prosecutors who have withdrawn from the case. Judge Jackson will likely have questions for whatever lawyers Bill Barr sends to replace those who stepped away. She might order the U.S. attorney who oversees these prosecutors to appear in court to explain all this, especially since he was just put into that job after his predecessor was pushed out of the Justice Department. She will most assuredly have her own idea about how many years, if any, Roger Stone should be in prison. Judge Jackson has gone easy on Stone throughout this trial. She's been more than fair, but she also gets a newspaper. She has eyes and ears, just like the rest of us. She has likely seen the Trump tweet that read, Is this the judge that put Paul Manafort in solitary confinement, something not even Al Capone had to endure? How did she treat crooked Hillary? End quote. Jackson, for the record, did not order Manafort to solitary. That was a decision of prison officials, not the judge. Jackson did throw out a wrongful death case against Hillary Clinton after the Benghazi attack. That lawsuit, filed by a Trump supporter, focused on Clinton's emails. Trump was trying to intimidate and influence Judge Jackson. But despite Trump's justice-shattering interference, Judge Jackson is the decider. And she will make her decision one week from today. Stone's lawyers have asked for a sentence as light as 15 months. Judge Jackson's sentence will likely somewhere land between that 15 months and the original seven to nine year recommendation. Any long sentence is likely to be overturned by a presidential pardon, so stay tuned. When asked about that by a reporter yesterday, Trump replied, I don't want to say yet. Tucker Carlson of Fox News is recommending it. And since Trump brought up Paul Manafort again, don't rule out a pardon for him as well. And by the way, Last week, the Trump administration interfered and changed Mike Flynn's sentencing recommendation as well, according to NBC News, from six months in jail to just probation. Flynn will hear his sentence today. Tuesday's reversal on sentencing reveals deep division in the Justice Department, and it reveals again Bill Barr's desire to please Trump at almost any cost. Trump's abuse of power has expanded in just one week since he was acquitted of high crimes and misdemeanors. The cancer on the presidency has metastasized to the Department of Justice. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said Barr's Justice Department should be investigated by Congress. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer wants the Justice Department's Inspector General to investigate DOJ's handling of the Stone case. Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler says he's on it. By yesterday afternoon, Bill Barr had agreed to testify for Nadler's committee six weeks from now on March 31st. In the meantime, if you're keeping score, and you should, this makes six Trump allies and campaign aides who've either been convicted or have pleaded guilty thanks to the Mueller investigation. Campaign Chairman Paul Manafort is doing a seven-year stretch, and his deputy Rick Gates is serving 45 days, albeit on weekends. 
Trump's former personal lawyer Michael Cohen is serving three years, and former National Security Advisor Mike Flynn, as I said, will be sentenced later today. The best people. Experts on authoritarianism, writing for Business Insider, say time is running out for Americans to stop Trump's slide into tyranny. Quoting Yale philosophy professor Jason Stanley, the deeply worrying moment is when you start to become a one-party state. The Republican Party, he says, has shown no interest in multi-party democracy, adding they are much more concerned with consolidating power. There need to be mass protests, says Professor Stanley, and he says, had there been mass protests after the Senate refused to hear witnesses in Trump's impeachment trial, this week's abuses of power likely wouldn't have happened. The word tyrant and dictator are being bandied about by some highly respected minds this week, including the mind of Salon.com's Bob Seska. Thank you, Buzz. As we predicted ages ago, the Senate acquittal of Donald Trump has fortified the president's worst instincts, emboldening him with a gargantuan sense of invincibility. After all, he's no longer accountable to the Justice Department nor congressional authority. There's literally no law enforcement body or process that can stop him, at least not before the election, and he above anyone else knows this. Consequently, Trump has gone from merely dictator-adjacent, dictator-curious, to being a full-on tyrant, a toddler with a machine gun, lacking the judgment, the values, or the discretion to forego his unearned power for the sake of the republic. Instead, he's brazenly exploiting his tyrannical powers in order to further shield himself and his rogues gallery of henchmen from prison sentences. And why? Well, because he can, and that's all that matters to Trump. The dignity of the office was abandoned the second he stepped into the White House, with further degradations along the way, until now, when he's chosen to avail himself of the unitary executive theory, granting him absolute power. He doesn't care about the presidential traditions and unwritten rules of decorum. Likewise, even the rule of law is irrelevant, as long as he has his agitprop network, Fox News, his brainwashed loyalists, and as long as the congressional Republicans continue to be submissive underlings, too frightened and small to stand up to him and his radicalized minion. Until recently, we generally viewed the federal government as a vehicle for the people's business. For Trump, however, the government is the new Trump organization, intended to exclusively enrich and immunize the president, while policy and legislative measures are there not for the people, but to deceive the people into thinking he's doing something for them. Trump has seized the presidency and turned it against his own people and in service of himself. Fascist isn't quite the correct word yet, but dictator or tyrant both work. Authoritarian and autocrat are especially appropriate. To be absolutely clear, Trump will not be the next Hitler or Mussolini. It's actually misleading to think in terms of dictators from foreign nations who were in their primes 80 years ago. Instead, Trump, America's first dictator, will go about this differently than history has taught us about other past regimes. Our dictator drapes himself in the iconography of the United States, the symbols we use to frame our nation, eagles, flags, anthems, Lee Greenwood songs, puffed up pride, including the words freedom and democracy. But he doesn't have any use or respect for the values and constitutional strictures that gave rise to all those things that we consider to be uniquely American. And given how the Justice Department has become Trump's personal security force, are we really a free and democratic nation anymore 
when the federal government is applying the law differently to him and not the rest of us? For now, no. No, we aren't free or democratic. Do we seriously think the framers intended for the president to act as a totalitarian monarch, abusing his power for personal gain? Not a chance in hell. What I do know is that the president has seized greater powers than any other non-Civil War era president in order to undermine both the rule of law and the democratic processes of a national election. While running Trump's campaign and while serving as a senior advisor, Steve Bannon coached Trump on, quote, deconstructing the administrative state, unquote. Not only is Trump doing exactly that, especially with regard to federal agencies he sees as irrelevant or as hindering his power grab, but he's also establishing his own shadow government, another colossal red flag warning us to beware of a tyrant who's dragging his nation away from republicanism and into the realms of despotism. Between Bill Barr, Rudy Giuliani, advisors like Hannity and Dobbs, and a subservient, impotent Republican caucus on the Hill, Trump is building a team that, in his own mind, could easily run the nation in place of that pesky deep state with its constitution and all those annoying agencies. Oh, and by the way, you can bet he'll keep the constitution intact as a symbol, even praising it when he needs to fluff his disciples, because, you know, people like it even though few of the people who compose Trump's cult know what it means. We're no longer in a place where we can laugh off Trump's actions as clownish, despite his clown makeup and hair. For the next year, Trump will do his very best to retain and expand his power while whittling away at the administrative state, piece by piece, acting department secretary after acting department secretary. This is Trump's government now, and he's daring us to take it away from him. Yet that's exactly what we have to do. It's our patriotic duty to wrest power away from this tyrant Trump and to restore constitutional order in America. This will require more than just tweeting or watching Rachel Maddow every night. The time for action is right now, before it's too late. There's still an opportunity to overwhelm the vote, completely steamrolling Trump's efforts with an unmistakable electoral mandate against everything he's done, humiliating him at the ballot box and, for all intents and purposes, forcing him into hiding. After all, it's not just Trump we have to defeat, it's the corrosive mindset that produced him. To defeat a mindset requires the kind of democratic force that tore down the Berlin Wall, that institutionalized civil rights here, the kind of democratic force that stirred the people of Hong Kong to stand up for themselves. And thus, always to tyrants. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I join Bob on his Tuesday shows. In the midst of this messy election, the Senate this week once again blocked measures to make our elections more secure. Among other things, the bills would have required campaigns to alert the FBI and the Federal Elections Commission about any offers of foreign assistance and to keep voting machines off the Internet so they can't be hacked. The House has passed nearly two dozen election security bills this year, and they, like all the other House bills, continue to languish on Mitch McConnell's desk so they never go up for a vote. And the nickname Moscow Mitch lives on. On Tuesday, Senate Democrats introduced three reforms asking for unanimous consent. Republicans said no. Just last week, the Senate's own Intelligence Committee, the Republicans, 
produced a new report on Russia's 2016 attack. That report stressed that the U.S. is, quote, not well postured to fend off the Kremlin's disinformation campaign. In a rare Trump victory this past week, an appeals court sided with Trump and ruled that individual members of Congress acting on their own cannot sue the president for violating the emoluments clause of the Constitution. Congress can sue the president with a vote, but individuals from Congress cannot. Senate Democrats were suing Trump, accusing him of profiting from his office, which is forbidden by the Constitution. The case was really, however, about getting hands-on at least some of Trump's suspiciously hidden financial information. The three judges on the D.C. Circuit Court ruled that a party that does not have a majority in Congress has no authority to demand to see those documents. The judges did not rule against all emoluments lawsuits, simply that a congressional minority has no standing for such a suit. We learned this week that the number of Americans injured in Iran's retaliation for the U.S. killing of its top general is not zero, as the president first told us. It is also not any of the revised numbers, 11, 34, 50, or 64. The new count is 109. And although 76 soldiers have returned to duty, 20 had to be shipped back to the U.S. for more sophisticated treatment. All are suffering traumatic brain injuries that Trump judged to be not very serious. Veterans groups continue to express their outrage. According to the latest Quinnipiac poll, which skews conservative, Mike Bloomberg would crush Donald Trump in a head-to-head contest held today and win by a whopping nine points. Bernie Sanders, who tops the others in polling, would beat Trump by an equally impressive 8% as things stand right now. Joe Biden, once at the top of this poll and others, would, despite his falling numbers, beat Trump by 7%. Amy Klobuchar would beat Trump by a comfortable six points. In all four of these hypothetical races, registered voters are giving Trump only 42, maybe 43% of the vote. Bloomberg and Sanders rack up 51% of the vote. This week, Trump called his Democratic challengers weak. The numbers prove him wrong. They don't know what the hell they're doing, Trump said of the Democrats. The numbers indicate they might. The Quinnipiac numbers also show Bernie Sanders ahead of all the remaining Democratic presidential hopefuls in national polling. Sanders also got a boost this week by barely beating Pete Buttigieg for first place in New Hampshire's primary and a boost before that from finishing in a virtual tie with Buttigieg in the still not completely decided Iowa caucuses. The Iowa State Democratic chairman resigned yesterday, by the way, because of the mess his caucus turned out to be. And while Quinnipiac has Joe Biden running second, Biden is eight points behind Sanders in that national poll and finished fourth in Iowa and fifth in New Hampshire, there with only 8% of the vote. If Biden doesn't do well in South Carolina, the man Donald Trump feared so much that he squeezed Ukraine to dig up some dirt might not be the candidate Trump faces in November. It is so important to Biden to do well in South Carolina, he's already there, skipping the Nevada caucus race altogether. But we are still at the starting gate for the 2020 race to the Democratic nomination. Biden is still strong nationally, and a strong showing in South Carolina, followed by a strong showing on Super Tuesday, could not only keep Biden in the running, but also boost him in the polls. Pete Buttigieg has had strong showings, virtually tied with Bernie Sanders in Iowa and New Hampshire. That could boost his Quinnipiac number, which is at just 10% nationally in the poll published the day before the New Hampshire primary. 
Amy Klobuchar has shot upward in the polls since her latest debate performance. She finished third in New Hampshire with nearly 20% of the vote after finishing fifth in the Iowa caucuses before that attention-getting debate performance. With Bernie as the progressive choice in the primaries so far, and with the rise of Amy Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren has mightily fallen. The Quinnipiac National Poll shows that voters think Warren is among the least likely to beat Trump. Warren finished third in Iowa, but fourth in New Hampshire behind Amy Klobuchar. Sanders, at this very early point in the race, would appear to be the last man standing among the progressives, with moderates divided among Biden, Bloomberg, Buttigieg, and Klobuchar. Combined, they have more than twice the support as Sanders. Billionaire Mike Bloomberg has spent nearly $400 million so far on a campaign focused mainly on beating Trump. Pledging to throw his money behind whoever wins the nomination, Bloomberg is now third nationally in the Quinnipiac poll with 15%. Bloomberg is the X factor in this race and focusing his campaign money hardest in the Super Tuesday states. He, Klobuchar, and Buttigieg appear to be the top choices among moderates while progressives have already narrowed their choice to Bernie Sanders. Next up, the Nevada caucus, then South Carolina, then Super Tuesday, when more than a dozen states vote. Sanders is expected to win Nevada because its caucus favors the candidate with the most enthusiastic supporters and because he's already topping the polls among Latino voters there. Buttigieg and Klobuchar might disappear after South Carolina, where they appear to have little or no support from black voters, and Joe Biden could rise again. As I said, however, it's early. Although it hasn't gotten much attention, there was also a Republican primary in New Hampshire on Tuesday, and although he's running unopposed in New Hampshire, Trump was there for another one of his rallies. He was there to show his party in unity behind him through video of that rally with thousands of red hats and to argue that the Democrats are anything but unified. He was also there to jam up traffic, to make it harder for candidates and voters to get around with the streets shut down for the presidential motorcade through downtown Manchester. Looking back one last time at the Iowa caucuses, we now know one reason the results were so slow to post that night. Trolls and Trump supporters had gotten hold of the phone number for precinct leaders to report their results and proceeded to jam the phone lines with nuisance calls. We can safely presume they were Trump supporters because they said so in their calls. The Iowa Democratic Party has confirmed it experienced an unusually high volume of inbound calls. Quoting the Iowa Democrat statement, the calls included supporters of President Trump who called to express their displeasure with the Democratic Party. The party reports the calls were hostile and slowed their collection of the caucus data that night. The precinct chairs turned to the phones after a new reporting app had failed which is why a spokesman for the Trump campaign said maybe Democrats should consider using an app of some kind next time. The phone number for reporting had been posted on a message board for the right-wing fringe group 4chan, and it was posted repeatedly, and it was easily found with a Google search. People were calling in from all over the country, not just Iowa. The people in that chat are the chief suspects in this one instance of political dirty tricks. It is not the reason for the failures of this year's Iowa caucus, but it clearly made things worse. And maybe that was the whole point. Funeral for a tree, weed 2020, and that's not a gopher in the final segment. Up next. These reports are beholden to no sponsor and to no big corporation, and there's no subscription fee. 
but there are a variety of expenses related to the production of these programs. So this newscast is free to you, but not free to make. If you'd like to help in this effort, please click on the PayPal Donate button on the upper right at buzzburbank.com or on your phone just below the title Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Some kind listeners schedule a monthly payment. A lot of great books out right now, including On Tyranny. And there's still a little Amazon button on my page. If you're shopping Amazon anyway, clicking through my website and bookmarking that Amazon page still helps. You may need to turn off your pop-up blocker to see all the useful links on my page, but it is both safe and helpful to do so. Whatever you do, whatever you've done, however you do it, thank you. It got up to 65 degrees in Antarctica this week. 65 degrees is the warmest it has ever been there. We learned this just days after the report that the Earth had just experienced its warmest January on record. The Antarctic Peninsula is one of the fastest warming spots on the planet, where average temperatures have risen 5 degrees over the past 50 years. Scientists expect that yet another heat record will be broken in Antarctica and soon, with temps running 40 to 50 degrees higher than normal. And the bumblebees are dying across Europe and North America. Bumblebee populations have decreased by nearly half here in the U.S., 46%. The world was already feeling the effects of a loss of honeybees, some to an unknown cause, the rest to pesticides. Now, bumblebees in the wild are diminishing too. Like other bees, bumblebees are pollinators, helping our tomato and cranberry crops. With their furry coats, bumblebees thrive in cool to moderate climates, and a warmer planet is inhospitable to them. Scientists say it's unclear whether the bees will recover. The coronavirus at the heart of an outbreak now has a name. Since even the common cold is a kind of coronavirus, this more threatening virus needed a name of its own. Scientists now call it COVID-19. The latest on that virus is that while the death count continues to rise, the rate of infection appeared to be slowing before spiking again yesterday with a new one-day high of nearly 15,000 cases, partly because of a change in diagnostic methods. On just Tuesday of this week, nearly 100 more people had died from it in China, raising that nation's death toll to just over 11,000. Nearly all of them died in Hubei province, the epicenter of the outbreak that's now in its third month. And although the virus has spread to nearly 400 people in two dozen countries, 99% of the cases are in China. There are now just over a dozen cases in the U.S. with only one death so far. The U.N.'s World Health Organization, which declared the COVID-19 coronavirus outbreak a worldwide health emergency, now says it hopes to have a vaccine for it within 18 months. On the other hand, we got 3 million more flu cases in the U.S. last week, and it has spread now to 45 states. So influenza has now hit 22 million Americans with a nearly quarter million hospitalizations and 12 thousand deaths just this year from flu, including the deaths of nearly 80 children, 80 children among the 12,000 dead, while more than four in 10 Americans continue to avoid the flu vaccine. Heroin use in the U.S. has nearly doubled since 2002, according to a new study published in the AMA Journal. It is a public health concern because even though we're talking about just one-third of one percent of the population, injecting heroin is linked to the spread of hepatitis C and the AIDS virus as the needles are shared. The world's oldest man is now Chitetsu Watanabe of Japan. 
He is 112 years and 345 days old today. The previous world's oldest living man is no longer with us. He died yesterday after 112 years, 226 days. Jitetsu has already surpassed that by 19 days. The longest living man in recorded history died at 54 days past his 116th birthday. The oldest woman lived more than three months beyond her 122nd birthday. Chitetsu says the secret to his long life is to, quote, not get angry and keep a smile on your face. Orson Bean smiled a lot, made a lot of people smile, but we can't know how long he might have lived. At the age of 91, the witty actor was crossing a street in the Venice neighborhood of Los Angeles when he was clipped by a vehicle and fell. A second driver then accidentally ran over him, killing him instantly. Neither driver fled the scene, and neither was impaired. Bean had roles in Being John Malkovich and Anatomy of a Murder. He appeared on Broadway. But he's remembered for his TV roles from the 1950s through the 2000s as an amusing game show guest, as the crotchety merchant on Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, and shows as recent as Superstore, Modern Family, and Grace and Frankie. He was born in Vermont in 1928 as Dallas Frederick Burroughs, but he thought Orson Bean sounded funnier. And now he's suddenly gone at the age of 91. We also lost this week Robert Conrad, the star of TV's Wild Wild West. Known for doing his own stunts, the handsome actor played secret agent James West in the futuristic 1960s Western on CBS. He's one of only a few actors inducted into the Stuntmen's Hall of Fame. And he may have been even better known as the man daring you to knock an ever-ready battery off his shoulder. Chicago's Robert Conrad died Saturday of heart failure at age 84. There was also a funeral this week for Hollywood's Witness Tree. This oak tree, more than 100 years old and featured in countless movies and TV shows, will soon no longer be standing. For the century or so that it has stood, it stood in what is Hollywood's Paramount Ranch, where silent movies and TV westerns were shot, now overseen by the National Park Service. The witness tree had shared a camera with Cary Grant, Gary Cooper, Marlena Dietrich, Elvis Presley, Sylvester Stallone, Bob Hope, Sandra Bullock, and more. It had also appeared on Dr. Quinn and Gunsmoke. But a little over a year ago, a wildfire ripped through the Santa Monica Mountains and onto the Paramount Ranch. The western town on that ranch, featured recently on HBO's Westworld, burned to the ground. The tree's bark was charred, but the tree kept standing. The National Park Service arborist babied it and waited, but it never came back to life. Last month, tree surgeons pronounced it dead. Over the weekend, the Park Service held a memorial for the witness tree. It's gone at the age of, well, we'll know as soon as the tree is cut down and we can begin counting the rings in the trunk. Like all Hollywood legends, the tree will live forever on film. The TV ratings for this year's Oscars award ceremony hit an all-time low. Only 23.5 million people watched. That's down 20% from a year ago. Best Picture went to Parasite, a South Korean film that is the first foreign language film to win an Oscar. TV viewership, even of live events, is down across the board. The Super Bowl had its lowest ratings in a decade this year. Another comic book-inspired film is on top in theaters this week. Margot Robbie and Mary Elizabeth Winstead in Birds of Prey. It sold nearly $35 million in tickets this week. 
Bad Boys for Life slipped to second after three weeks at number one. 1917 is third, Doolittle is fourth, and Jumanji hangs in at number five. For all the movies, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please click very hard on the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. A federal judge this week okayed T-Mobile's plans to take over Sprint. Together, they will be in the same league as AT&T and Verizon, offering a third big phone company. Prior to getting government approval for the merger, T-Mobile executives stayed frequently at Trump's D.C. hotel, where they were at least theoretically able to rub elbows with the members of the Trump administration who are also seen there regularly. The T-Mobile executives have denied any wrongdoing. At least 10 governors have now put language in their annual budget requests that would end the prohibition of marijuana. The governor of Connecticut and leading lawmakers there are pushing to legalize cannabis this year. The governor of New Mexico has put it on the legislative agenda there. The governor of New York says he'll try again this year. The same pledge from the governors of Rhode Island, Virginia, and Wisconsin. The governor of South Dakota has reversed her position and is now working with lawmakers to at least loosen the marijuana laws there. The Colorado town of Steamboat Springs set a new world record this week for the largest firework ever detonated. It was just plain big, weighing nearly 3,000 pounds. A local company set it off from a 16-foot steel tube buried in Emerald Mountain, which overlooks the annual Steamboat Springs Winter Carnival. The 62-inch wide mortar shell was loaded into that tube, from which it rocketed about a mile above the earth before it detonated. The previous record was set in the United Arab Emirates in 2018 with a 2,400-pound shell. When Dan Kane's postal carrier told him his mail wouldn't fit through the slot of the front door of his office, Dan knew there was a problem. The problem was the mail carrier had 79 bins of mail for Dan, which he had to take home to his garage to sort. It turns out Dan had gotten 55,000 letters, all from the same address. The letters had come from his student loan company which has apologized and says it's taken steps to make sure this doesn't happen again and is working to give him a lower interest rate, which I think he deserves. I just hope this doesn't happen again, says Dan, adding, I might just have to return to sender. The faces at Target are as red as its logo. The Minnesota-based retail chain got it wrong when it tried to sell an infant's onesie to honor the University of Minnesota's Golden Gophers. Unfortunately, the onesies proclaim support for the Minnesota Badgers. Go Badgers. There are no Minnesota Badgers. That's the mascot name of their Big Ten rival, Wisconsin. It's the Wisconsin Badgers and the Minnesota Golden Gophers and Minnesota-based Target got it wrong. The Ocala branch of the home office in Florida tells the tale of a 63-year-old man who was looking for an auto parts store on Saturday night he spotted a sheriff's deputy, flashed his lights at the deputy to get the officer's attention, pulled the officer over, and asked him if he knew where to find an auto parts store. The officer had other priorities, however, since the aroma of liquor wafted out of the man's car and the officer's flashlight revealed watery bloodshot eyes. It also revealed a bottle of bourbon, a small bag of what field tested as cocaine, and a 15-year-old passenger in the car. The man was arrested and jailed with a court date next month. Once out of the car, the officer noticed the man was, quoting the police report, unsteady on his feet. The man failed a field sobriety test and blamed it on his disability. 
and he refused to take a breath test, telling the officer, you didn't pull me over, I pulled you over. And finally, there's a kangaroo on the loose, in Florida, of course. It's been spotted on camera in the Redland area of Miami-Dade County. There are no roos missing from the zoo. Florida Fish and Game says it has no records of anyone in the area who has a kangaroo permit. Of course, I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comments. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.